If you got a Bible, would you grab it and turn to Genesis chapter 2, where uh, we're going to be looking at what it means to be male and female. What could go wrong? Um, You know, when I was charting out this series, I was thinking like, golly, these days of creation, that's going to be really controversial. Um, But it, it was this past week thinking about how do we say these things? How do we word these things? What is the word of God saying to us today that I realized this is going to be the week where maybe the controversy picks up? Um, Because the reason that I think we kind of all laugh there is because we live in a day and age that is uh, experiencing massive change in our understanding of gender. Um, And so because of that, what I'm aware of is that basically simply by reading the text today, simply by giving the categories male and female, some will hear that as restrictive. I could end up going viral for all the reasons, wrong reasons, online right now. Um, And so uh, I've got some nerves stepping into this message, but I'll tell you this, uh, this is space that I am, um, like the days of creation, glad to step into because I think that God has life for all of us here, and it is life that we desperately need. And so if you kind of feel that little tension when I mention the topic this morning, let's just take a breath out together. Let's just breathe out together. Just Uh, These are the words of life. These are the words of our creator and redeemer who loves us deeply, and he wants to lead us into that life this morning. Um, And I start there because it's, I I think that um, it's really easy to look at what's going on in our world today around gender and say that our, our world has lost its mind when it comes to gender. Um, and, and I would largely agree with that statement. Like, we have moved so far past sanity when it comes to this topic, and yet I would be quick to add, I think we lost our minds a long time ago. Um, and, and so the, the, the fruit of what we've seen over the last five, really ten years, um, I believe is actually the fruit of a much earlier confusion, where um, we have either not understood or we have lacked strong examples of what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman beyond mere biology. I think we've not understood this for a long time, and so it shouldn't surprise us when the biological piece just goes out the window. I think the confusion goes up and up and up the stream, and because we have lacked compelling examples of what it really means to be a man and to be a woman, a holistic vision that incorporates everything about us, like we talked about, being dirt and divine breath, being a body, but also this dynamic union of an inner person. And because we have not given a holistic understanding of what it means to be a man and a woman at all levels, I think what we've done is we've left an entire generation um, that is confused Particularly because it's not even that we haven't given good examples. I think many of us could share stories of grotesque and twisted examples of what it means to be a man that has nothing to do with the Bible, that is more about our sin and our confusion. And and so you introduce an environment where maybe there's not clarity, and then you have twisted, distorted examples of what manhood is. And it shouldn't surprise us that we've got an entire generation that's asking questions, going, we're not sure about this whole thing. Maybe we just toss it out. We're not enjoying this at all. And, and, and so um, if you're feeling depressed, the, the confusion goes far back beyond this. Um, here's the good news. What we have in the opening pages of the Bible is God's design for what it means to be a man and a woman. And so whereas I think that, uh, that this text uh, has life for us, I will tell you this as we get in. This text will challenge you this morning. Um, this text has challenged every culture in the history of the world that I'm aware of. 
Uh, it's challenged it in one way or another. We, you know, different cultures have different forms of brokenness, but I think this text is going to challenge us this morning by giving us God's vision for manhood and womanhood, but is going to challenge us in such a way that it might lead us into life, uh, the type of harmony and flourishing and life that we've seen for the past several weeks in God's good world as it was made. Could anybody use more of that harmony and flourishing in their lives? Okay, well, with that said, let's dive in and see what God's got for us. Genesis chapter 2, we will pick it up in verse 18. It says this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Um, our text ends in this grand crescendo, and it's actually all headed towards a marriage ceremony, which we'll get to next week. Uh, but it, it ends on this, it begins with this really interesting note. Um, it says, it was not good for the man to be alone. Um, now, we live in a world that has not good stuff happening every day, so maybe you didn't notice it yet, but so far in the creation story, all the past several weeks, everything is good, everything is very good, and, and here in our story, we see the first thing in human history that is not as it was made to be. God creates the skies and the land, and it was good. God creates all of the uh, birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, and it was good. God creates all the land animals, and it was good, including the cats. Like, everything is good. And then you get here to the pinnacle of God's creation, a human made from dirt and divine breath, this incredible place where heaven and earth are intersecting in the human person, where God is communing in the soul, and yet we read, yeah, it was not good that the man was alone. Um, and I, I want to unpack that statement in just a moment, but um, I want you to feel, um, I, I think the angst, or maybe angst is the wrong word, I want you to feel what Moses is doing in the text here. He says in verse 18 that God saw that it was not good for the man to be alone. Now in verse 18, God's got the solution in mind. He knows exactly what he's going to do. He's going to make a helper fit for him. Uh, God has always had this plan to have man and woman. God wasn't surprised. God had the solution in mind. But what you'll notice is we get several verses of human history before God intervenes. And in fact, it, it's Adam naming all the animals. So just use your imagination of like, go to Oakland Zoo, think about all the animals there. How long would it take to name that? Okay, now go to a zoo in another country that has other animals. How long would it take to name all that? Adam named all the animals. I imagine it was quite a bit of time between verse 18, when God sees that it's not good and proclaims his plan to the point when God actually intervenes. And, and I don't know if you... Um, Think about that often, but we, we said this in the Gospel of Mark, that God's timing is often not like our own. 
that if, if it were me, I would have been like, it's not good. I, like when I see something that's not perfect, I have to fix it immediately. Um, but God, he, he doesn't step in and intervene immediately. He, he waits for Adam to come to realize the not goodness of his aloneness. And I, I think that's just fascinating. Um, one of the commentaries I read this week uh, had such a good quote that I think sets our text up today. Here's why he would speculate, and it is speculation, but I think it's good speculation. Here's why Bruce Waltke um, speculates that God maybe waited some time um, between um, pronouncing it's not good and actually intervening. Listen to this. He says, rather than squandering his most precious gift on one who is unappreciative, God waits until Adam is prepared to appreciate the gift of woman. And so uh, what God does is it's not good for man to be alone. Um, and, and, and think about the, the logic here. Uh, we said that humans are created in the image of God, in the image of a God who exists in a perfect community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the not goodness comes from a, a single person in isolation cannot adequately image a God who exists in perfect community. It just, it just doesn't work. Someone that is solo cannot image someone who is communal. And, and so what we're seeing in this, I, I think most people in our world today could agree with, is this idea that isolation is fundamentally dehumanizing. That... Um, you know, we all come in here in different places. Um, some of you are married, some of you are single. This isn't saying you need to be single, or excuse me, married to be human. It's saying you need relationships to be human. That because we're made in the image of a God who exists in a perfect relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we cannot image that God if we are in isolation. And, and it's interesting, talking to some of my um, friends that don't yet know Jesus, is uh, they, they know that isolation is dehumanizing. I think our whole world has experienced that over the last year or so. But what the opening pages of the Bible is doing is giving us an explanation for why. That um, isolation is dehumanizing because we are created to image the God who exists in perfect community. And so God sees this. Adam's new. Adam doesn't know this yet. And so God lets Adam get to work so that Adam can come to this conclusion on his own because it's always more powerful, or I like how Walke says it, he'll appreciate the solution a lot more when he feels the angst of what he's missing. And so God lets Adam get to work. He, he begins naming the animals. Now, that could sound really, really random to you. Like, why is he naming animals? But in the ancient world, when you name something, it's an exercise of authority. It's, uh, so when God said to the humans to fill the earth, exercise dominion over it, cause it to flourish, when Adam begins naming the animals, he's doing exactly what God told him to do. He is seeking to cause everything to flourish. And that begins with giving a fit name to each creature. And so God brings this like super tall animal with a big long neck that reaches up to the treetops to Adam. And he says, what do you think? And Adam says, giraffe. God says, very good. I love it. Way to go. Um, then he brings him this big gray animal that has big floppy ears and a long nose. And Adam says, elephant. Okay, three of you are paying attention. This is awesome. Uh, so he says elephant, right? And then he brings him a much smaller creature um, that is just covered in fur, and it's licking him, and it's just, oh, like it, it almost seems like this creature was made to complete the man. <laughs> Cat. 
Well done. Well done. And it, so depending on if you're a cat or a dog person, just use your imagination there. It's like it's almost like he finds the helper suited for him as the dog comes and Adam says, dog. But not even the dog could fill the gnawing that Adam had in his bones. And so we're told for a second time at the end of all of this naming, which again, talk about it in your gospel communities this week. How many years do you think, or days, or weeks, or months, how long do you think it took Adam to name all the animals? I'm envisioning a long time. Men are sometimes slow to pick up uh, the message. I know, this is, we're seeing at page one of the Bible. Some of you are like, oh my goodness, it begins there. Adam finally gets the message, there's no, there's no helper suitable for me. If the dog can't completely, none of these animals could possibly have a shot. And so for the second time, we are told it is not good that the man is alone. There is no helper that is suitable for him. And so now God intervenes. Because uh, this is the moment God has been waiting for. That uh, the human has realized the peril of his condition. And now he is ready to appreciate God's good gift. And the pinnacle of creation comes... Remember, this is the zoom in on Genesis 1. All this happened in a verse in Genesis 1. In the image of God, he made them male and female. Genesis 2, we're going to get some details on that. The pinnacle of creation, God makes the woman. And so it's not good for man to be alone. That's fundamentally dehumanizing. And so God's solution, I want you to catch this, it's not to make more atoms. It's not to take more dirt and divine breath and make more atoms or take from a rib someone that looks exactly like Adam. God creates someone that is like Adam but distinct from Adam. And that's what you see in Adam's song that gets celebrated here at the end. I want to read it one more time because these are the first human words recorded in history. Think about that. Verse 23, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Um, these are the first, songs, or first words in human history, and um, I, I want to point this out. Uh, it's a song. Did you notice in your Bible how it's indented there? I understand Hebrew poetry is a little bit different from modern poetry, but hopefully from your Bible translation you can see how it's indented. This is a song. That God creates Eve, he brings her to the man, and Adam's response is, whoa, man! Like, you are like me, but you are so unlike me. Uh, that he's, He says, you have curves. I, my body does not look like that. You're not covered in hair like all of them and like me. Like, you look different than me. And some of you are like, well, how would he know that upon first meeting her? You read to verse 25, she's naked. Um, Now, we'll talk about why that is next week and what's going on there and, and, and just save all that for next week. But here's the point. God brings the first woman to the first man. And his response is, this is incredible. You are like me, but you are distinct from me. And um, it's funny. It's, uh, he celebrates the difference. Like, I, 
I so badly want us to feel in our bones this song this morning because I think so much in us wants to flatten out the differences between men and women. But Adam, upon seeing the first woman, celebrates her. He celebrates those differences. And so as we talk about uh, the creation of this first woman, we're just going to look at this in more detail this morning. As we talk about this, I want to talk through the grid of two things. I want to talk about equality and distinction. Distinction is going to get into some of our differences, but I think we got to start with equality because he's not just celebrating that you're different than me because the dog was different than him. The whale was different than him. The giraffe was different than him. It's this, it's this crazy combination of like me but not like me that leads Adam to sing. And so let's just look under those two headings and see how the opening pages of the Bible present woman is fully equal to the man and distinct from the man in such a way that would lead to praise and a glad song for from the man. Uh, let's start with equality. Um, now, of the two headings, I think we've made a lot of progress as a culture here on this one. I'm not saying that we've arrived, um, but I think we've made a lot of progress on this one. And so there may be some details in the story that you might miss because you live in a modern culture. And so I want to just try to put us in the shoes of an ancient audience. I want to point out some things. Number one, did you notice how many women that God created for the man? One. In an ancient culture where they treated women like cattle, that would have been shocking. Like, go on and read the Bible. Once sin enters the world, men begin to multiply their wives. It's wicked. It's evil. But you'll have some guys that have a wife for every day of the week. By the time you get to Solomon, they have wives in the hundreds. And page one of the Bible is saying, bro, don't do that. She is your equal. You get one wife because you are not more human than she is that you would need to go around to different people. In fact, if you would just invest in the depth that is there, you'll find she's more than you could explore in a lifetime. So the first thing the Bible says is this woman is this equal. And that would have shocked the ancient world. Um, like, wait, one wife, where's all the other ones? Yeah, it's kind of the point. She is his equal. There are not meant to be several. And if you say, ah, I think you're reading too much into that. Okay, well, look at how God makes her. He, he puts Adam down for a nap. And while Adam's sleeping, he uh, pulls out a rib, uh, closes the place with flesh. And from that rib, he makes the woman. Now, I hope by week five, you know enough now and you are polite enough and humble enough uh, to not look at this and say, well, scientifically, that's impossible. How is that operating? I want details on that. Moses isn't interested in giving us details. He's telling us a why here. He's telling us that in taking the woman from the rib from his side and turning that somehow into a human being, like, I don't know that that's any more amazing than creating a human from dirt, you know, from a rib. If anything, I think it's saying we're all made from the same stuff. But here's the point. Genesis is getting at something that I'm sure you've probably heard at a wedding ceremony before. Uh, Matthew Henry famously put this. I want to make sure to get this right. That Eve is taken um, from his, not from his head that she might top him. Nor is she taken from his feet that the man might trample her. But out of his side that she might be with him. As his equal. That's the picture that Moses is communicating here. That by taking a rib from Adam and creating the woman. Adam's asleep, by the way. He's not contributing. He's not co-creator. God is creating just as he always has. Someone to be equal with Adam. Someone to stand with Adam. 
is a fellow image bearer over the created order and to partner with Adam in showing the world what God is like. This is the picture of equality that we see between men and women in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And, and the reason I say 1 and 2 is because this is just reflecting on what we saw in Genesis chapter 1, where it says, at the pinnacle of the created order, God made humans in his image. In the image of God, he made them. Male and female, he made them. See, Genesis popped on the scene in a day where men were viewed as more valuable than women, and from page 1 said, absolutely not that men and women share an equal status as image bearers and as such have equal dignity, value, and worth above all of the rest of the created order. This is page one of the Bible, and this is what has revolutionized uh, the cultures throughout history that treated women as more valuable than men. It was this idea that cut against the grain on that. This is the beginning for the women's rights movements right here. But um, to get into that is to re-preach the sermon from two weeks ago. Here's the point. I want to make any interpretation of what comes next that would violate the equality of men and women has to be rejected on the grounds that Genesis 2 will not disagree with Genesis chapter 1 and more to the point the way that God pulls her from his side and makes one woman not a several women for the man is stressing from the very outset that she is an equal as Adam that they stand together as image bearers. And so any interpretation that would say, well, the women's kind of like a, a junior varsity human to the, to the man, we've just got to reject that on those grounds. Are you with me? We're nervous right now, aren't we? Okay. Um, well, well l- let's move from equality, which I, I think you are with me on equality, right? Okay, men and women, equal in dignity, value, and worth as God's image bearers. She's pulled from his side, not from his hat to crown, Ted to crown him, or under his feet to be trampled on, there to rule together. I love this picture in the art here, standing together and ruling together. That is the picture, and that's the first and most fundamental thing you need to see here. And if you're not with me on equality, just tune me out for the rest of the sermon, because we need to work on equality before we can talk distinction. Because if you don't get that equality piece, it goes real bad real quickly once we move on. Um, that said, equality is not the only thing being taught in this chapter. God doesn't, I said it earlier, he doesn't just create more atoms. He doesn't just say, the world needs more of you, buddy. Let's multiply you. There are uh, means through which God could have just cloned him. He could have just made more atoms, but he doesn't do that. He makes someone that is uniquely distinct from him. He makes someone that when she shows up, Adam's response is, whoa, man, like me, but definitely not like me at the same time. And so I want to get into those distinctions to talk about what Adam is celebrating here, because there is something to celebrate in these differences. And I think if we can recover this, we might have something to say to our world today, and God might have more life for each and every one of us in this room today. So let's now talk distinction. Um, There's a phrase that is at the heart of our text that comes up um, in verse 18, and I believe it's verse 20, and that is a helper fit for him. Um, Let me read it here from verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. We talked about that. I will make a what? Helper Helper fit for him. Now, I notice some of you that sounds like a swear word. Um, 
So let's chat about that word helper because uh, I, I will be the first to admit there's a lot of bad teaching in the church. I'm not saying in the world. I'm saying Christians standing on the Bible have said really dumb things about this word um, that uh, it would be very understandable if you hear that word helper and you're like, oh, here we go. Heck no. And you're just ready to fight it. Let, let me just say, I know there's bad teaching out there. Um, but I, I don't think we should let bad teaching affect our understanding of the Bible. I think we should seek good teaching. Um, for those of you, I'm, I'm seeing some nods. For, for those of you that maybe you're newer to this discussion, let me give you an example just so you can empathize with the rest of us this morning. Here is a, a quote from um, St. Augustine, one of the great fathers in church history, um, on this verse. So I want to be clear right now, this is a quote from Augustine, not Chad Francis. Are we good? Okay. Augustine said, I don't see what sort of help woman was created to provide the man with if one excludes procreation. If woman is not given to man for help in bearing children, what help could she be? Good grief. Um, Continuing on, to till the earth? If help were needed for that, man would have been a better help for man. The same goes for comfort in solitude. This is a quote now. How much more pleasure is it for life and conversation when two friends live together than when a man and a woman cohabitate? Augustine of Hippo, everybody. And he is more responsible for the theology that I bet each and every one of you hold than you even know. So we have a lot to be thankful for, for Augustine. Um, and, and just to give you some sympathy for him, uh, he had some real brokenness in his story as it relates to women. Um, but, but let's say it, that's crazy, right? Like what help could the woman be to the man aside from making babies? That's absolutely nuts. That's absolutely nuts. And yet this is the type of teaching that has passed down through the church in some places. And we've got to reject it based on the first point. If women and men are equal, then women have a lot more to offer than simply their bodies in the process of making children. There are brains, there are hearts, there are souls that, just like men, have gifts. Like Some you'll see in the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't say, here's the spiritual gifts for men, and here's the spiritual gifts for women. God gives all gifts freely to all humans. So this isn't talking about men being smarter or better than women. We've got to reject that on the grounds of equality that we just talked about. And we've got to reject it not only on those grounds, but frankly, um, Augustine, who generally is a very good biblical interpreter, does not do a very good job interpreting the word helper here. Um, And so I want to read to you from a woman the understanding of helper because I want to prove my point that women have something to offer here. Here is a great Bible teacher named Kathy Keller. I want to let her tell us what helper means because I think this is really helpful. She says this, helper connotates merely assisting someone who could do the task almost as well without help. But Ezer... The Hebrew word translated as helper in this passage is almost always used in the Bible to describe God himself. Other times it is used to describe military help such as reinforcements without which a battle would be lost. To help someone then is to make up what is lacking in him with your strength. Women was made to be a strong helper. Kathy Keller, everybody. Um... 
So I, I love that quote because what she's saying is, helper, it's, it's not a point of weakness saying you really don't have much to offer to the table. Um, what it's saying is actually quite the opposite, that the one who is helping is the one who is strong, that the one who is helping is coming alongside someone that is weak and unable to do something on their own. And the only quibble I would have with Kathy Keller's quote is I would say, I don't think you need to learn biblical Hebrew to realize this. Um, it's helpful that she can say the word ezer and you can look up all the places in the Bible that that's used, but you could just look up that word helper in your Bible and look at all those places and see all that. And I I would say this, just think about how the word works in English. Um, If my daughter comes to me and says, Dad, can you help me spell unicorn, which happened this weekend. Um, In that instance, who's the weak one in that scenario? Some of you are like, this is a trap. (laughs) I'll say it. It's my five-year-old. My sweet, beautiful, wonderful five-year-old cannot spell as well as I can. So she comes and says, hey, I've got to do this for school. I need some homework, help with my homework. Can you help me with my homework? How do you spell this? It's not my weakness that she's asking me for help. In fact, it's my strength that she would come to daddy and ask, how do you spell it? See, I I can keep up with kindergarten-level spelling just fine. Now, that might not be true if she goes on to med school like she talks about sometimes. There might come a day where she asks me to spell a word, and she's not really asking for my help. She's just trying to indulge dad, and maybe that's what Kathy Keller's getting at, where, hey, in English, helper can mean lots of things. But in Hebrew, helper is talking about that former idea of my daughter coming to me, saying, can you help me with my homework? And me, strong daddy, saying, sure, sweetie, I can help you. That's the idea here. And so if anything, the word helper, it highlights the strength and the value of the one doing the helping. So let me say it this way. If you have been taught that to be a helper uh, is something that makes you less than or inferior to a man, your, your issue is not with the Bible. It's with um, people who have allowed their own brokenness and their own story um, to cloud their understanding of the Bible. Are you with me? To be a helper is to provide strength. In fact, helper not only often describes the action of God in the Old Testament, but by the time you get to the New Testament, it becomes a nickname for the third member of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit. And so helper talks about a strength, a contribution, about a value. And so that's the first point I want to make. Helper, we should be excited when we see this. This is the God word that women are created to provide God-like help to humanity. So now, um, here's what I will say, though. Some people have reacted to bad teaching that has acted like helper makes you less than. Um, and they have swung to the totally opposite end of the spectrum and said, okay, uh, if Genesis 1 says that men and women are equal in dignity, value, and worth, then that means there can be no distinction at all in roles or responsibility. And um, other than biology, of course, because um, I almost said no one would argue today, but people in our world might argue today. But like for a good faith discussion, you shouldn't argue that a man can have a baby. Like this is not the 1990s movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger like getting impregnated. Like this doesn't happen in the real world. And, and so, um, for as nutty as Augustine's quote was, he is right that men and women are built differently. And, that, and, and yet, I would say, for all of our strength, no amount of strength can cause a man to grow and give birth to human life. Arnold Schwarzenegger, notwithstanding in that movie. And so, 
so folks will look at this and say, okay, because we're equal, there can be no distinction in roles, except for biology, of course, because you can't deny that without losing reality entirely. But the idea is, it's just biology. It's just the dirt part of your being. We're going to sever out the divine breath of you and, and talk just there. The distinctions has to end at what you can physically see across the room. Anything more than that, and, and, and you're right back to where Augustine is. Now, here, here's what I'll say. This is typically presented as an idea that's liberating for women. Um, because I think people have had an Augustine-like mindset that has said, hey, your intellect isn't valued here, your strength isn't valued here. And so some people, I think, have reacted so strongly to that saying, hey, there could be no distinction whatsoever. But I, I will tell you this, the idea of saying, like as a dad, for, for someone to say to me that what makes my three daughters unique is just their body parts and nothing more, um, I don't hear that as liberating. I don't want to look my little girls in the eye and say, when God thought you up, he thought up your very unique body. And everything else you could do just like anybody else, but that's where your uniqueness ends. And so, like, I want to say it this way, because um, a lot of Christians will land here, where they will say that there are no distinctions between men and women based on the equality we share as image bearers, besides, obviously, biology. I want to say this. There's a lot of Christians that land there. There's a lot of Bible-loving, Jesus-loving Christians that land there. So if that's you, you are welcome here. Um, I have Jesus-loving, Bible-believing pastor friends that land there. Um, but I'll tell you what I tell those pastor friends. Um, this is not going to be a single-issue here at Fair Oaks, where every week is about this. Um, my goal is not to convince you differently on this. Like, I, I want to talk about Jesus. I want you to have life in his name. That's the big deal here at Fair Oaks. But when God's word brings us to a place where we talk about this, I think it's an opportunity to think afresh. So you can be a Christian and disagree on this one. This is one of those open-handed issues. But I'll tell you what I tell my Jesus-loving pastor friends who faithfully minister the word of God week in and week out that would land on that other extreme of no distinction besides biology. If that's where you land, I think it's possible you've missed the beauty of this text. And so what I want to invite you to do as we think about distinction is just look at the text afresh. Look and see if God might have more for you here than the idea that distinction is limited to biology. So let, let's look at this phrase one more time. Who am I kidding? I'm a preacher. It'll be more than one more time. Um, but here's the phrase. I will make a helper fit for him. Do you notice that it does not say, I will make a helper exactly like him? Hebrew has a way of saying that. God did not say that. Um, what God is saying is he will make a helper who is going to complement his weaknesses with her strengths. And that with her strengths, she is going to amplify his strengths with her unique abilities that he does not possess, with her unique perspectives that he does not possess. She is a helper who is fit for him, meaning that... I think the plainest reading of those words is that men and women are not created interchangeably, but are created to complement one another, to do more together than they ever could if the world was all men or all women. And, and I think that's really what you see in the word ezer that Kathy Keller brought up for us earlier. Think, think back with me to that idea of my daughter coming to me for help with her homework. If she comes to me for help with her homework, 
whose responsibility is it to do the homework? It's hers. I'm glad two of you are responsible parents in this room. If you're a helicopter parent and think it's your responsibility to do your kids' homework, gosh, I know I'm treading on very sacred ground there. Um, I, I would invite you to consider that you might be taking something that's theirs from them. I'm not saying don't support your kids. Okay, not going to get off on that tangent. It is my daughter's responsibility to do her homework. Like, let me say it this way. Mrs. Gomez can't grade me down if she spells things badly on her test. She can't. She cannot make me stay for detention after school. They don't do this in her kindergarten, by the way. But I'm, right? Like, the homework, it's her response. When she says, Dad, can you help me with my homework? It ain't my responsibility, folks. This would be her responsibility, her homework that she has been entrusted with, that she has been tasked with. And she's saying, Dad, will you come alongside me and help me with my responsibility? Because without you, I can't do it. And, and that is exactly how the word Ezer is used throughout the Hebrew Bible. If you go to every single instance of where it is used, just like Kathy Keller pointed out, it's usually referring to an army coming to the aid of someone without which they would lose the battle, or it's God coming to the aid of his people to break through in a way that they could not in their own strength. In other words, the word Ezer, every time it is used, is denoting someone providing strong help to the one with primary responsibility. So by saying that God made the woman as a helper fit for the man, what this is saying is that God has given the man the primary responsibility in the call that we looked at last week to cultivate and to guard God's good world and to cause it to flourish. This is why, by the way, when Adam and Eve sin, and if you read the story, Eve does it first. When Adam and Eve sin and eat from the tree... God doesn't come for Eve. He comes for Adam and says, what happened, bro? It's because this is his primary responsibility. That Adam and Eve, as image bearers, are both called to the work, and yet Adam is given a special responsibility to ensure that that work is done to the degree that where it fails, God comes first for the man. Now, ladies, he will eventually come for Eve, so it's not like, well, great, I bear no responsibility. It's not saying that. But what it is saying is the man bears a special responsibility in this work. And, and, and in saying that, that he is making a helper fit for Adam. Someone that's going to complement him and be able to come alongside of him in the work that God has called him to do in a way that he could not on his own. In saying that, we are finally getting beyond mere biology. where what the opening pages of the Bible are telling us is that men bear a special responsibility in ensuring, human, in, in ensuring that humanity lives out this great calling that God has given us to cause the world to flourish. And so if you are the note-taking type, here's the statement you can just take down and reflect on and, and think on. Um, manhood, in this sense, is we're seeing it here in the opening pages of the Bible, manhood is about taking responsibility to ensure that God's good world and all that's in it flourishes. That's manhood. I know that's long. It's also in the worship guide online if you want to pull that down later. Manhood is about taking responsibility to ensure that God's good world and all that's in it flourishes. And you don't even need to be a Christian to recognize that that is true. 
Um, I know we can bristle under it, but if you look at any um, sociological study about the presence of men in the home, in a society, what you will see is homes where men are present tend to flourish. In homes where men are absent, I mean, this is just sociology, this is statistically speaking, where men are absent, you have mental health is down, crime is up, poverty is up, and society crumbles. A society without strong men being who God has called them to be does not last for long. And this is a reflection of God's design that we're seeing in the opening pages of the Bible here, that man has been given and entrusted with this special responsibility in the shared work to ensure that the work is done. That men are called to set the climate to either cause the creation to flourish or cause it to deteriorate. And, and look, I, I never want to say that with also, without also saying this. As someone who is raised by a single mother, I can't say that without also saying this. Um, if you're someone that's raising a child, as a grandparent, as a single mother, w- without a man in the home, I don't say this to discourage you. In fact, if you continue reading in the scriptures, what you're going to see on repeat is that God seems to have a special heart for moms and caregivers in hard places. So um, what I would say to you is where the ideal that we're talking about right now lacks, grace abounds. And, And we won't get there until next year in the book of Genesis, but there is a text where a desperate mom cries out for help because of her dumb, deadbeat, um, would-be dad. And God comes through in gracious and powerful ways. So don't let this crush you if that's where you're at. This is not saying that your work is futile. In fact, God's grace is enormous in that situation. What I am saying is that this is saying that this is the unique call that God has for men. To step up and take responsibility and to get into the game. This is what it means to be a man. Manhood is about taking responsibility to ensure that God's good world and all that is in it flourishes. But that's not work that we can do on our own, fellas. Um, And so so God creates another, and he doesn't create more Adams. We said that already. He creates Eve, a woman who is like him, but distinct from him. Because more Adams wasn't going to fix the problem. So God makes Eve. He brings her to Adam to come alongside of him and use her unique strengths to help God's good world and all that's in it flourish. And so, ladies, that's the call for you to use your unique strengths to help God's good world and all that's in it flourish. Because here's the point, without you, we are hopeless to carry this out. We need your presence, we need your perspective, we need your passions, we need your proclivities. All of that has been given to you by God uniquely to make this world flourish. We need you to join us hand in hand so that we can stand together and rule over God's world and cause this place to flourish with every ounce of grace that God would give us to impact this place. We need you to stand with us so that together we can more fully image God in this world. And that's ultimately what all this manhood and womanhood stuff is about. See, see, see the question will often get said if you spend time on a text like this is, why are you making such a big deal out of this? Why don't you just talk about Jesus? Here's the reason why. Um, Because the reason that God has made us male and female, according to Genesis chapter 1, goes back to our image-bearing status. 
And so the answer for why God would make men and women equal in dignity, value, and worth with distinct roles. Why would God do that? Maybe you wouldn't do it that way. Maybe that doesn't make sense to you. But I would submit to you the reason why God would do that goes back to page one of the Bible. It says, when God made the humans in his image, he made them male and female. Because just as one person in isolation cannot adequately image a God who exists in perfect community, so you cannot have several humans who are exactly like one another without differences imaging the God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this really does get back to the Trinity. And I'm not saying you're not a Christian if you don't believe this. I'm saying there's more of the Christian life for you in this. There's more image-bearing ability when we can recognize and celebrate our differences and come together. Because just as every member of the Trinity is equal in their divine status, and that would make you a Christian or not, to argue, yeah, Jesus, he's not fully God, the Father is Jesus, not so much. You're not a Christian. You're welcome here. We love you. I'd love to tell you why we love Jesus here, but that's, that's the dividing line of being a Christian, that we believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And just as each of them share equally in divine status and at the same time have different roles among the Trinity, so God has made humanity in his image where men and women stand equal in our dignity, value, and worth as image bearers with distinct roles and responsibilities to image and to mirror what we see in the Godhead. And, and that's what all this male-female stuff is about. The differences in our sexuality, it's not random, it's not made up by humans, it's not a cultural construct, it's page one of the Bible given to us as a gift from God so that we might more fully image him in the harmony that has always existed between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That we, as we come together with all of the things that make us unique and complement one another and work together instead of fighting against one another, when we come together in our uniqueness and can celebrate that and stand together as God's co-image bearers, ruling over the world, bringing flourishing, that's when we've got a shot at imaging the God who exists as Trinity and works together to hold the entire cosmos in a state of harmony. And I've spent a lot of time with people talking about this. I, I think a lot of times what we do is we judge all of this content by the ways that we've seen it distorted by sinful humans, and we don't judge the contents on the merit of the text and what it's teaching. If you could sit in the text and see the picture of men and women as equals and distinct, ruling over the creation to mirror the God who is Trinity and equal and distinct in his roles, that together we can show the world what God is like in a way the animals have no shot of doing. If you can see that, I think it's a beautiful picture. Um, I think it's a really beautiful picture. But here's what's happened. And, and, and I want to note what's happened because um, there's some of you that are feeling this is a crushing weight right now. And I don't, this is not meant to crush you. These are the words of God. He wants to lead you into life. And so if, if you feel that as a crushing weight, maybe this is why. Maybe consider this or think a, about this. Um, what has happened is uh, humanity has not eaten from the tree of life. We have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil like we talked about last week. We have decided to define things on our own terms. 
Um, and, and so in so doing, uh, men have taken the responsibility entrusted to them by God and by and large often used that responsibility in a way that pushes down, that hurts our fellow, fellow image bearers, that uses and abuses and dishonors the God who has given this responsibility to us. But this is the status of sin. This is what it means to be sinful, that we, use, we take the responsibility we've been given and we use it to take instead of to give, which is the whole purpose for which it was given. And so then people can become suspicious. We can look back at early cultures and see how they treated women like cattle and be like, that's insane. We've got to go the other direction. And so now we see in a culture where we are starting to move in the other direction, where now every TV show you turn on, the man is a moron, and it's the wife and the kids and the dog that are out to save him. Because all we've done is traded one heir for the other. That um, men treated women as less than, and so we react on this side, and we're like, you know what, the whole world would be a lot better if you guys weren't around. And we're not unique. There have been cultures throughout history that swing from one end to the other. And what it is, is it's a battle of the sexes where we're fighting and clawing for cultural power, where are we going to have manhood have the power, or are women going to be in power? And we fight and we claw and we pick at one another and we tear one another down and we say, well, we're stronger than you. Well, we're smarter than you. And we fight and we claw with one another. And this is human history. If you study cultures, you'll see, yeah, these guys really, like Ephesus, where a lot of the New Testament was written, they worshiped a female god. They thought men were inferior. Genesis, the culture this is written, they had many wives. They thought men were superior. They're both wrong. And see, this is the cycle of sin within us. And the only way to break the cycle, I would submit, is to look to the God who is Trinity. To, to look to the God who designed us this way. To get out of our cultures and stop trying to fight for power over one another. And look to how God operates. That in full view of the way that we have sinned and failed to live into this good design, God the Father says, let's save them. Let's redeem them. Let's buy them back from the darkness they have given themselves over to and bring them new life. Let's bring them back into page one. And Jesus, God the Son, says, send me, I'll go. Jesus dies on the cross, not the Father. God the Son gives his life on the cross. And working in perfect harmony with the plan that the Father had created before the foundations of the world. This is Ephesians 1. The Father creates the plan. The Son comes and accomplishes the plan. And upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the Son ascends to heaven Fully God, fully human now, ruling and reigning, and he sends God the Holy Spirit to fill each and every human heart to help us believe this gospel, to help us live in light of this gospel. It's not Jesus that lives in your heart. It's not the Father. It is the Spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit who works new creation in our lives, who works all of these truths out in us. This is how the Trinity works in perfect harmony to save us. It wasn't the Holy Spirit saying, Jesus, I got to die on the cross. That's not fair. It was the Holy Spirit saying, Jesus, you do that. I'm going to do this. We are going to work together. We are going to compliment. We are going to work together to redeem them. Because amongst the Godhead, there is no competition. There is no sin. There is only harmony. There is only love. There is only the unique persons of the Godhead working together to bring more life to the cosmos than if they had fought with one another. 
And I would submit to you that in our great God, we not only see the redemption available to us for all the ways that we have failed to live into our manhood or our womanhood, but we are given a model for what this can look like. And so there's so much more I can say about all this. I want to close with a brief word to the men and to the women. And then um, what I want to do is remember the gospel together and sing and give our God who is Trinity a, a chance to, to work in our hearts. Because I know this is a lot right now. So, so let me just close with a, a word to the men and a word to the women. Um, fellas, I think in light of this text, we need to ask the question, where do you need to get into the game? If manhood is uniquely about taking responsibility, where is God calling you to get in the game and take responsibility? Um, I was thinking this week, it's so easy to complain about what's not right, what you don't like. What would it look like to turn that complaining into action this week? And to use everything that God's given you to serve and to lift up others, to use their full strengths to impact this world. So, so that's a question I have for you, uh, fellas. Uh, to, to my sisters, um, I, I have more I want to say to you. Um, not the least of which, because this is Eve's week. I didn't give the guys their own week last week, but this one's yours. Um, I, I know that when you talk on a topic like this, so many things, your mind can race to a thousand places, and I think, like I said, that's because there's quite a bit of bad teaching out there. Um, and so I wanted to say explicitly a couple of things to you. Um, number one, this is not saying that you should not lead. Um, it is your pastor. Um, I want to see you use every ounce of giftedness that God has given you to lead and advance this place forward and to make an impact in this community for Jesus. Because as you read the Bible, as the story of the Bible continues on, what you're going to see are women um, prophesying, women preaching the gospel, women leading and making a dent in the universe for the king of kings. And so uh, don't hear this to say you shouldn't be leading. If anything, hear this and say your leadership is necessary and valuable because you will bring something that men alone cannot do. And so please don't hear this and punt on the giftedness that God has given to you. This is not saying not to lead. This is not a matter of who leads and who doesn't. I think part of the way that you can help us is by being the best leader you can and stepping out and making a difference. Um, I will also say it, it, it also doesn't mean that you should have a general posture of silence around men or just go along with the flow. I realize as I'm saying some of these things, I could sound like Mr. Cleaver up here, like, oh, good grief. So I, I just want to correct any misassumptions. This isn't saying that you should be silent or just go with the flow. Some of you know that I married a pretty strong-willed woman, and my life is so much better for that. And um, she challenges me. She presses me. And look, I, I know that's not all of your personality, so I'm not saying to be someone you're not. I praise God for the diversity of personality that God has given us, even within our unique genders. What I am saying is if you have a personality that is driven to lead, if you have a personality that is driven to push and say, well, what about that? Or this can't stay silent or anymore. I've got some thoughts about that. If that is your personality, this text is not calling you to zip it and to stay quiet. That would be a misreading. That would be an overreading. That would be stepping beyond what these are saying. And in fact, I would argue that this text is actually saying just the opposite. 
that you will see things that men will not, that you will have a contribution that without which we will look like a lopsided, distorted image of God that's all um, chicken wings and um, contact sports and things that are great, but it's a very limited picture of what God is like. And so I want to encourage you to make your perspective known. I want to encourage you to grow in your knowledge of the word of God, to make disciples, to get in the game and make a dent for the King of kings and for the Lord of lords. Because Christ is on the throne. He is ruling and reigning. The kingdom of God is available to everybody. And we don't have time for either gender to sit on the sidelines. So this isn't saying you shouldn't make your input known. What I would say is it's saying at the end of the day that both men and women, we need to do this in a way that complements one another and does not compete with one another. I think that's the distinction I want to leave you with today is, is your understanding of men and women ultimately a competitive, a zero-sum game? Or is it one of complementary where God has given us some unique things, he's given you some unique things, and together we are more together than we could ever possibly be apart. And so why would we want to compete? Why wouldn't we want to work together and walk in the fullness of it? Um, fellas, by the way, your, wife, your, your job right now is not to look at your wife and say, see, um, that would go against the Holy Spirit. Um, what your role is, is to take the initiative to set up lanes for your wives to use the fullness of their giftedness. And this isn't just for married folks. This is for single folks to be in a church where men and women work together and set up those lanes. But, but now I'm going back and preaching on all that. I guess I would say that this is how all of this is meant to work, guys. Mutual service thinking more of others than we do of ourselves. of how can I create a lane for you to use your gifts? How can I come in that lane and play big with that lane, make much of my gifts? How can we make this place better? This is the way of the kingdom. And I know it looks foreign to our world, but that's kind of the point. That when humans can come together and instead of reinventing the wheel on gender, leaning into God's good design, complementing and working together, I think we can show a beautiful picture of what our God is like to this community. And so what I want to do, I want to pray for us, I want us to sing, and I want to give God an opportunity to work these things down into our lives. So would you pray with me? Father, I, I ask you would send your Holy Spirit right now. This is a, a raw topic. This is... Um, this is a topic that I just sense. There's a lot of history around these ideas. Um, and so I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to help us, to guide us into all truth right now. Um, where anything I've said uh, would uh, lead to conclusions that aren't from you, I pray that you'd point the attention to what you do want to be heard today. I pray that you would um, give us the humility to look at our lives honestly and consider, um, are we living in line with your design, or are we trying to reinvent the wheel? Um, and I pray that you would, uh, as you guide us into truth, that you wouldn't just give us truth this morning, but that you would give us grace and truth as your, as your way. That you wouldn't let us feel condemned for the ways that we don't stand up and step into our role, or for the ways that we don't understand these things. I pray that you would give us a sweet sense of the grace that you have toward us in Christ. There's nothing we could do that would increase your love for us or decrease your love for us. So would you send your Holy Spirit to give us not just truth this morning, but the type of grace that would open us to receive your truth and walk out of here more alive because of it. 
So help us be a beautiful community of men and women living into the fullness of your design to show this community what you are like. In your beautiful name we ask. Amen.